Be Rad podcast is brought to you by MoFo, male optimization formula with organs to boost testosterone. Brad's macadamia masterpiece, mind-blowing nut butter blend, now offered on Amazon. Chili technology, temperature-controlled mattress systems for a good night's sleep. InsideTracker.com, offering blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data all in one place. And Organifi, whole food organic superfood supplements and drink blends. And please visit the shopping page at bradkearns.com for my personal selection of favorite products for health, fitness, and peak performance with great discounts for listeners. Here we go with the show. We all have a genetic amount of sleep we need. The average is slightly over eight hours, so about eight hours and 15 minutes with a 35-minute standard deviation. If you don't meet this genetic need every night, you build up debt. Let's say you need eight hours and you get seven tonight. Well, then tomorrow you have one hour of sleep debt. If you go from eight hours of sleep to seven hours of sleep per week, your cognitive performance is like you're at the legal limit for alcohol at the end of the week. How do you know how much sleep you need? Because you cannot oversleep. Literally what you do is you go into a cool, dark, quiet room. You make sure that you have no sort of unnatural substances, you know, plaguing your sleep. And then you just get as much sleep as you possibly can. And what you'll see is that most people get, you know, maybe ten, nine or 10 hours the first night, and then a little less the next night, a little less the next night. And then it'll level off somewhere where their sleep need is. Hey, listeners, get ready for one of the most important shows on the single most important health topic of them all. That's right. It's sleep. And I have a wonderful guest full of amazing and groundbreaking insights that you may have never heard before. I know I learned a ton at this show. His name is Jeff Kahn, and he is the co-founder of Rise Science, which is a really cool app that delivers all kinds of interesting data and tracking with your sleep, but in a different manner than you may be accustomed to with the many other sleep trackers. In fact, Jeff brings the heat and makes some profound proclamations, such as there's no such thing as sleep quality. You know, when you get that 84% reading on your aura ring or whatever it is? No, he's going to set us straight. Everything he says is steeped in scientific research, and he can back it up with peer-reviewed studies. Uh, He made that point to me very clearly before we even hit record. So I think this guy is really on his game. You're going to learn a lot, and he's going to really simplify things too. So it's not really scientifically uh, hard to follow. You're going to get a bunch of takeaway fascinating insights. You're going to learn the human genetic optimal period for sleep and the standard deviation. So where people fall, if they're people that think they need less sleep, some people think they need more sleep, and we'll kind of cut through the... Uh, misinformation out there, especially the amazing idea that if you're sleep deprived, you're not a good judge of how much sleep you need. (laughs) So you better just try to optimize that part of your life for best results. And Jeff's going to teach us about the two-factor model of sleep, which is the most important uh, sleep research that's ever been discovered. Number one, the number one factor is your sleep debt how far behind you are at any given time. And it's an accumulation of debt of nights that you didn't get enough sleep. And number two is your alignment with your circadian rhythm. Oh my gosh, you're going to love this show. Listen carefully. 
play it at regular speed instead of 1.75 speed or whatever speed you usually play with, like me when I try to listen to too much content. Yeah, Jeff's been around. His research has been featured in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, ESPN. He works with professional athletes in the NFL, NBA, MLS, and NCAA sports, and lots of good takeaway stuff from Jeff Kahn. And go look up his app called Rise and get started using it. I am all over this. Jeff Kahn. Jeff Kahn, we are warmed up, man. We got so many exciting <laughs> things to talk about on one of my favorite subjects and perhaps the most important health topic of them all, and that is sleep. So I look forward to just winding you up and getting some of these big picture objectives covered, seeing where this fascinating conversation will go. Um, I'd love to... Um, hear how you got started when you were back uh, in the college days and starting to wonder if sleep was affecting your performance as an engineering student. And then we'll, we'll take it and run from there. Yeah. So, you know, I got into this about 10 years ago and it's, uh, you know, pleasure for me to tell this story and, and hopefully share a little bit of wisdom with, with everyone here and, um, you know, bring, hopefully bring a little bit of science to the table as to Brad. Uh, I know we were talking a little bit about some of the mythology that's out there, but uh, you know, for me, it just started, I was just exhausted like everyone else was. And I think it's pretty normal for people to feel that way. But I thought, you know, why not study sleep science? I just want to figure out what do I need to do with my sleep so that I feel better? Do I need to like take melatonin? Do I need to get my REM percentage up, my deep sleep? Do I need a new mattress? Do I need to bother with like, you know, thermoregulation, getting a chili pad? Do I need to start tracking my sleep? Like, do I need to take supplement? Like, just lay it on me. Like, what do I need to do so that I feel good? And I just, as I was reading through the literature base, honestly, I was just confused and I had way more questions than answers. And so I begged my school sleep science department. I just said, please take me on as an apprentice. And so this is now 2011, 2012, the first consumer sleep trackers had just come on the market. And I was really interested in figuring out how do you take that data that's being generated and use it to actually help people feel better and have better sleep habits. And uh, so I ended up publishing that paper and kind of before I knew it, you know, all this was very academic until uh, about 2014, uh, 2015, all these pro athletic teams started calling in asking Northwestern, hey, what are, what are you doing with sleep? We want to, we saw this paper, we want to, like, you know, we know sleep's important for performance, can you help us? So very quickly started working with teams like Clemson and Alabama and Michigan and the Patriots and, you know, the Bulls and the Cowboys, you know, name a, a pro team and we've, we've worked with them. And um, uh, why, I mean, it really got... Have got a, um... Did you have a noted sleep laboratory, uh, particularly at, at Northwestern, that's uh, distinguished? Yeah. So, uh, the, the believe it or not, the first sleep lab in the entire world opened uh, at the University of Chicago, which is about, I don't know, 10 miles away, roughly 12 miles away from Northwestern, back in 1925. Wow. And so, you know, sleep science has been around for almost 100 years, and it started in Chicago. Uh, that was the first human sleep lab. And so Northwestern, U Chicago, Penn, Stanford, Harvard, University of Washington, Pittsburgh, probably some of the biggest institutions in the world that study sleep. Um, but I mean, there are now thousands of sleep scientists that have produced over the last almost 100 years, you know, three and a half million peer-reviewed papers, uh, if you, you know, check on Google Scholar. So it's just wild the amount of knowledge that's been generated and uh, just was lucky enough to get to study with with some really really great scientists. And but it, uh, it, it started. It. You're saying it started at Northwestern, uh, University of Chicago, so down okay. the road from Northwestern. Yeah, but it started. That's so funny. You know, all there. Yeah, I have to throw yeah. in an anecdote about my uncle because um, it's it's so close to home here. But um, he was a uh, a residency 
student at Northwestern doing his medical huh. residency. And this would be in the okay. 40s, the 1940s. Wow. And he described how he did not leave the building for about six weeks because of the heavy hours and then sleeping in the in the crash room and then getting back up and just cranking through residency with you know ungodly number of weekly hours. He never went outside. He didn't do anything. And so he finally got up the courage to ask his advisor like, hey, uh, is it possible that I could maybe uh, you know uh, take a weekend off at some point? And the guy said, oh, sure, go ahead, take the weekend off. So he left the building. He drove to Milwaukee 90 miles right from Chicago. Huh. Uh, and he, you know, he, he walked into his his family home on whatever Friday afternoon or something, and he went down for sleep. And when he woke up, it was uh, sometime on Sunday where he had to get in the car and drive back to the building to return back to work. So he basically slept the entire weekend. And he had no idea because he was so wow. deprived. And now we go back to Jeff's story of the the sleep lab at Northwestern. Yeah, no, I mean that's uh, it's it's kind of funny because around that time is when some of the first studies were done on trying to figure out what is this thing called sleep and how do we measure it and what does it all mean and how does it affect how we function and you know all that was coming to light right around that time. So uh, in Chicago, yeah, the so, guinea pigs uh, were there. Yeah, the guinea the guinea pigs were there. And uh, so I, where, where sort of my story took me is after years of working with these professional athletes and, you know, coaching them personally and uh, we building technology and all, all sorts of stuff in the field, uh, I just decided, and, you know, if anyone's listening to this and, and is either run their own business or, you know, Brad, you've got your own podcasts and, you know, doing a lot of uh, stuff on your own, doing anything is so hard, doing anything well. And so I said, you know, life is short. I really want to do something where we can take all these learnings from these pro athletes and apply it, you know, at a massive scale. Could we help anyone that has a mobile phone? And so that's sort of in 2018, just really had the great fortune to, to focus on building technology that anyone could use. And so today you can download our app in the app store or play store. You just type in rise and it'll pop up. And we help you with uh, getting more energy using sleep and circadian rhythms as the main tools to do that. So, um, you know, we can talk more about how we do that, but uh, hopefully I can bring to bear uh, some of the science that I learned back when I got started, a bunch of practical advice that I've gained over the years, but uh, just happy to be as much of a resource as I possibly can. Yeah, thanks. And you draw this distinction between sleep and circadian rhythm. So let's get into that, especially your contention that uh, sleep solutions that are not centered around your circadian rhythm don't have as as well as good of an impact yeah no it's a great question so i you know certainly on this show and you've had a bunch of folks already talk about sleep i think what is well documented thanks to folks like matt walker and a ton of the you know ariana huffington and all the major news outlets covering sleep is that if you uh if you don't get good sleep basically everything about your functioning suffers you you live less your your quality of life suffers and, and is likely the most important lever that exists for how you function. So I think that's everyone is starting now to realize and is becoming known. What's not known, and maybe you disagree, Brad, or agree. Well, oh, it's so funny. There. I think you, you caught me smiling there. And the, the funniest part is that um, when you're sleep deprived, you have poor judgment. And so yes. everyone who walks around saying, yeah, you know, I feel fine after five hours of sleep. I can just rally, but they're sleep deprived. So they have no idea how poorly functioning they are. It reminds me of those um, drunk driving videos we watched in high school where uh, the people had a couple drinks and they said, oh, I feel fine. I can go drive the cone course. And they're running all over the cones because oh, yeah. they had no idea how, how, um, how impaired they were. 
And, and so we had to watch on the video how impaired they were because they felt fine. Well, and if you look at the research on that topic, you'll see that there's actually more because of that phenomenon. There are more deaths every year because of fatigue driving as compared to drunk driving because of the same. More thing, than right? drunk you, driving. Yeah, because you yeah. get in the car, you, you know, you had five hours sleep last night. And maybe you had six the night before and maybe six the night before. It's been a rough couple of days, but you feel fine. You get in the car and drive <laughs> and you nod off a little bit. And, yeah. you know, it's in the early afternoon and you you run off the road or you 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 kill someone else. And it's it's serious, serious stuff. and we can talk a little bit more about why that is and why, why is it so hard to be aware of how uh, sleep deprived you are, you know, and what, what to do about it. I guess uh, I hate to do another uh, a detour. Uh, first was Uncle Jack. And now this Tiger Woods accident <laughs> is so fascinating to me. Um, you know, I, I wrote a book about him long ago about his peak performance attributes and his focus and his <laughs> ability to excel as an athlete. Um, and there's some speculation that, you know, he's had problems with Ambien in his in his past. He's had a couple incidents on the road. And here's one where he took no evasive action. There's no skid marks, but he's awake and, and rushing to the golf course at 7.30 a.m. Maybe it was the sleep medication or something like that, huh. if we want to just uh, armchair here Speculate. for a second. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, when you look at most of the sort of um, high-risk accidents, Exxon Valdez, you look at, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, sort of uh, Chernobyl, you look at a lot of these really big, um, you know, high-risk accidents, pretty much, I don't think there's one that doesn't have uh, sleep deprivation as a sort of uh, at least main or significant factor as part of the reason that, that the, you know, accident happened. And so I would be, if I would be extremely surprised if Tiger Woods was incredibly well rested and had low, low sleep, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I it's, it, it's a huge, huge factor. So I think what people know is like, it's a very important factor for how you feel and function. I think what's unknown today and what is misguided and what people don't really realize, not the scientific community realizes it quite clearly, but I think in the mass market is that, uh, how do you get all those benefits? Like, what is it? Do you need to like increase your sleep quality? Do you need to get more sleep? Is it what? Ha- like, do you need to? What happens if you take melatonin? Do you need to change your REM sleep? Do you need to be tracking it? Like, what is actually going to affect how you function and how you feel? And so, luckily for us, researchers have discovered what those factors are. And in my opinion, this is the most important finding in all of sleep science over the last hundred years. And it's called the two-factor model of sleep and wake regulation. So a lot of words, but basically all it means is if you care about how alert and awake you are during the day, there's two factors that matter. And so the first factor is something called sleep debt. And sleep debt simply is just a measure. It is truly a scientific term, but it, it just means that it's a measure of how sleep deprived you are on any given day. And the way that it works is we all have a genetic amount of sleep we need. So it's lived, the average is slightly over eight hours. So about eight hours and 15 minutes with a 35 minute standard deviation. Really? So that means that's, that's just like uh, height or eye color, we have a genetic need. That's referencing genetics. Correct. This, this standard deviation and this landing point of 815. Yeah. So 815 is the average, but that would be like saying the average height for males in the U.S. is five foot nine, or I don't know what the actual average is, but of course, all of us are different than five foot nine. But it's, um, that's a pretty tight standard deviation when you think about it. Yeah. So most of us need between seven and a half and nine, you know, roughly speaking. 
how many right so plus uh, or minus one standard deviation is roughly going to be about what 65 percent of the of, of the distribution oh is that so is that's a scientific yeah. calculation sorry i didn't pay attention in yep. those classes but so then we have 30 <laughs> then we have 33 percent who are outside the one standard deviation that's a lot of people exactly and it is. so maybe there's uh, you know, 17% that need more than 845. And then yep. there's 17 that can get, that can be the, the rock stars that we, um, that we hear about. hundred <laughs> percent. Yep. Yeah, okay. ex- exactly. You're, you're hundred percent right. And sort of as you need less and less, the likelihood that that's the case becomes less and less too. Uh, <laughs> So, you yeah. know, if you're like, oh, I need five hours. Well, that's incredibly rare. That's like the number of people that are seven feet tall sort of thing. So, yeah. Okay. So, All right. so that's, that's sort of the first thing that most people are like, really? Like, I didn't know my sleep need was genetic. I didn't know I had a different amount of sleep than someone else. I mean, I think we all kind of feel it, but, uh, but it, it's, it's bizarre to me that that's not just, everyone should know that. I mean, we spend so much time sleeping. We should all know that we have a genetic sleep need and it's different, uh, for each of us. And it, it does change significantly from the time you're born until you're at about a, you know, until you, you know, go through adolescence. But once you hit about, you know, you, you mature, uh, you know, age 18, let's say through until you die, your sleep need from a biological standpoint doesn't appear to change. Uh, although it's a bit of a contested point in the literature, it's still not quite known, but it seems to be the case that that doesn't change so much. Uh, but your sleep architecture, what happens during sleep certainly changes as your hormones change and as you age and all sorts of things that we can get into later. So back to the story on sleep debt, if you don't meet this genetic need every night, you build up debt. And the simple way to think about it is sort of like bank debt, right? Like if you need, let's say you need eight hours and you get seven tonight, well then tomorrow you have one hour of sleep debt. And how you feel today, and then let's just let's just play out this one more time. And then let's say that next day you need eight because that hasn't changed, and you get six. So now you add two more hours of sleep debt to the one you already had. So now you have three hours of sleep debt. So your performance, how you function, how you feel is going to be based on how much sleep debt you have, not based on how much you slept the night before, not based on your sleep quality, not based on how much REM you got, not based on your recovery scores, just how much sure. sleep debt do you have. And you're, you're, you're saying this is a, uh, a linear accumulation over time. So it's not quite, so that's the, the, that's the simple understanding. The more yeah. accurate understanding is that it actually builds up over about 14 to 30 days. Our mm-hmm. research with the NFL and NBA suggests that it's about 14 days is really where we can start to detect it in sort of real life performance settings like, you know, three point percentage or point per minute efficiency or in-game performance if you're in the NFL. Um, But there is some laboratory research that suggests that it can go as many as 30 days. And you can carry somewhere between 20 to 40 hours of this debt. So beyond some level, it's not like you can just keep accumulating it, you know, ad infinitum, but you can, you know, have somewhere between 20 to 40 hours. So the good news is if you've got a bunch of debt, you can pay it off, which is really exciting. Uh, but the sort of flip side to this is, let's say you have a bunch of debt. If you get you know one night of eight hours or even two nights of your need, don't expect to magically all of a sudden be much better because you haven't paid any debt back. Uh, and so it's really important to be thinking about how you're feeling with respect to how much sleep debt you have you know, over the last two weeks, not just what happened last night. Now, to your question about is it a linear accumulation, it's not linear. 
So the last night does account for, just to give you an idea, you know, if the last 14 days, there's 100% sort of waiting over the last 14 days, last night might be around 15% of the waiting. So last night's certainly a big, the biggest chunk, but it's not the only chunk that matters. And it, it, it even goes back, you know, again, as far as 14 days. Yeah. So if you, I'm thinking of my sister who's a physician and so she has some call nights and some, you know, huge disruptions to sleep and she's a world champion on um, weekend napping and she'll go in there for uh, two and a half or three <laughs> hours and be crashed and report that she was totally crashed out. So obviously uh, making up on debt. Uh, in, in my case, I'm, I'm also a world champion napper, but my naps last uh, routinely between 20 and the most ever would be, you know, 40 minutes or an hour. So there, I, I never get that much in debt. And therefore, I don't need that world champion, world-class nap. But something yep. clearly is going on here where, um, you know, th- this debt thing seems to make a lot of sense as, as one of the two most important. You're going to tell us number two, but um, yep. that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So we actually have the longest study in the history of sleep science that shows we're actually tracking the sleep. Starting with Uncle Jack in 1943 at Northwestern driving. Exactly. I hope he was driving (laughs) safely to Milwaukee and back, but he he was definitely in debt heading there the first time. Exactly. He wasn't driving safely to Milwaukee, but on the way back, seemed like he paid back some debt and was doing better. Um, so, so that, that, that sort of debt. And, and I, as I was just sort of saying on this study, we actually have a two year longitudinal study following NBA and NFL athletes. And we're wow. actually looking at their sleep debt and how that predicts their in-game performance, their three point shooting, their point permitted efficiency that just got accepted for publication about three weeks ago. So that should be coming out, uh, hot off the presses pretty soon, yeah. but, uh, it's not surprising to the scientific community. But for everyone listening to this, that is like, well, my sleep score says that I got okay sleep quality and my, my, this uh, device said this and that device said this and my mattress company says I should be waking up feeling great in the morning. Just throw all that out the window and focus on sleep debt. It is the main number that matters and is the only sleep score that you should at all be concerned with. The, it's the only sleep score that is sort of based on science. Every other sleep score is, well... I don't know. We, we, you know, some engineers sat in a room and they said, well, you know, we'll give this 15 points and that 20 points. And this, you know, it's, it's a, it's a game, it's entertainment. It's not actual science. And so I uh, just would encourage you to, um, you know, not look at those things and, and focus on what matters and, and um, think about your sleep debt. So that's oh my gosh. I'm so glad to, that, that I'm so glad to hear that because those things kind of freak me out and I run screaming away from anything that can track my sleep because I feel like when I'm trying to fall asleep at night, I'm going to be stressing about it or wondering what my score is and, and it's going to get in my head instead of just, you know, go to sleep. And uh, tracking debt seems to be so simple, Jeff, because you know when you, when you uh, hit the bed and, and when you wake up and you just have an yeah. hourly figure. Exactly. And, and what's nice about that from a just sort of uh, mental model is that you know sort of how much you need to pay back, how much in the hole you are. Right, so if you've got right. 10 hours of sleep debt, you're like, oh, like, you know, that's sort of, an, I've lost an hour of sleep for 10 days, you know, roughly. Just it gives you an idea of something you can think with. If your sleep score says you got 83%. What the heck does that mean? I don't know. And no, no, no one knows that it's not important. <laughs> it's, that doesn't, it's not indicative of any underlying physiological process. Um, and so when you look at sleep debt, what's actually kind of cool about it is um, it's very hard for us, as you mentioned, actually be aware of how much sleep debt we have. And uh, what will routinely happen is, is if you measure someone's sleep debt, so if you're listening to this right now 
and let's say you have a bunch of sleep debt or you've been getting six hours of sleep a night or five or four, you'll be like, you know, I might feel slightly sleepy during the day, but I'm not that tired. Like, I don't feel like I'm, you know, feel like I'm doing just fine. And researchers have looked at this and figured out, well, how is it that, because that, here, here's the high level stat that might freak you out. If you go from eight hours of sleep to seven hours of sleep for a week, your cognitive performance is like you're at the legal limit for alcohol at the end of the week. For what, missing one hour. Missing one hour, so you build up seven hours of sleep debt. You're at the legal limit for alcohol compared to having no hours of sleep debt. Wow. In, in all ways, shapes and forms throughout the day? No, like everything th- I do sucks? Is, or? Uh, well, um, so here's where it gets a little bit personal. There's sort of, there, there, there's all, you know, what quality of life means for you, what performance means to you is so different, right? You might really care about emotional performance. I might really care about my 40 time or my, you know, uh, reaction time or my, I mean, there's so many different types of performance. Roughly speaking though, the way you can think about sleep debt is it is like oxygen. You cut it off and every single biological system we know of does deteriorate from a performance standpoint. So yes, you are right that roughly speaking, everything is worse off. What I'm referring to specifically with the cognitive performance is a measure called neurocognitive vigilance. And it's sort of a measure of how alert your brain is, how functioning it is, how performant it is. And it's uh, measured through something called the PVT. It's basically a reaction time test that you can't learn. And, um, and that's, you would score, if, if, I were to, if you were to have zero sleep debt and take the test, uh, or I'm sorry, if you were to have zero sleep debt and get drunk, so you're at the legal limit for alcohol, take the test, you'd score, let's say 250 milliseconds on average. And if you were to be fully sober, but have seven hours of sleep debt, you'd also score 250 milliseconds. Wow. So that's, that's sort of the, the, you know, scoring on this, on this test. Yeah, and I guess, um, you know, a, the, the vast majority of us don't really have anything to hold us to the ultimate high standard during our day in day out function. Like we were just talking before we hit record about the customer service person who I called up this morning. I said, hi, this is Brad Kearns. I want to talk about my account. And she said, can I have your name, please? Right. <laughs> um, right. Uh, so, I mean, most of us are kind of uh, on cruise control unless we're shooting three pointers in the NBA and then your, you know, your, your debt shows up and, um, yeah, yeah, and I mean, even in the case of the phone agent. So if you build up about eight hours of debt, your vocal tone, so your how positive <laughs> you perceive her voice will be, her voice will be more negative depending on how much sleep debt she has. Wow. So, I mean, it's, it's uh, how much empathy you have for her on the other end of the line is going to be based on how much sleep debt you have. You could see but how what else, things unwind, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so like if you look at emotional performance, if you look at, you know, cognitive performance, if you look at physiological performance, every single one of those is going to materially deteriorate in a clinical level as you build up sleep debt and not crazy amounts of sleep debt either. You know, right. so like from a, actually Matt Walker did this study um, who, have, uh, who, you know, we've talked about a little bit before this, who I think has done some amazing things for the field, but his area of expertise is really sleep and memory. And he ended up doing a study that showed that if you build up about eight hours of sleep debt, so you go imagine a night without sleep, of people the next day will have clinical levels of anxiety for folks that otherwise weren't anxious. So, I mean, it's just, uh, that's on the emotional side. And we can look at sort of the physiological side. Let's look at something like metabolism, which obviously you care a lot about. 
if you build up, so uh, this was done at UChicago back in 1999 and was sort of the foundational study for sleep and metabolism. And what it showed is uh, if you take, you know, 25-year-old healthy males and you have them get, I believe it's four hours a night of sleep mm, for five yeah, I've nights. I've heard this it study might be referenced, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you've probably heard it before, yeah. where your glucose metabolism will be decreased by 30%, which is the rough equivalent to having type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just shocking. Again, you build up uh, sleep debt, and within a week or two, you could be experiencing clinical symptoms of physiological issues, emotional issues, cognitive issues, and the root cause, sleep debt. Right. So when we talk about fat reduction, uh, here's your goals with your diet. You're going to do keto. You're going to do this program. You're going to exercise like crazy. And if you're, if you're skimping on sleep, you're, you're headed toward type 2 diabetes rather than any of your goals. It's, it's shocking. 100%. Yeah. 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 And I mean, any sort of goal that you could care about, sleep is really this foundational layer that allows you to do the other ones you know, that much better. So that, that's, that's sleep debt. And, um, and I, I guess to close out the study on this, that um, if you have about, th- let's, if you, if you study folks that get four hours a night or five hours a night, and, and then asked to report how subjectively sleepy they feel the next day. What you'll see is that day one, you know, let's say we're getting eight. Day one, you'll be like, oh yeah, I'm a little more sleepy. Day two, you'll feel a little more sleepy of getting, let's say four hours of that second night. Then let's say you get four hours for a third night. We ask you, hey, how sleepy do you feel? You'll feel slightly sleepier. By that third day, by the way, you'll report to feeling slightly sleepy. And then basically from day four through day 14, you don't feel any more sleepy. That's the defense mechanism you're referencing in our genetics. That's I believe. If I, I now this is an opinion I have. I don't. I, I you know I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but if I had to venture an opinion, I would say that that's our sort of evolutionary evolution's way of saying, hey, if you are not getting a lot of sleep because you're moving around to a new area, you're defending yourself, you're scounging for that you're really sleepy because you, you likely need to be on the run. And so we're going to activate all your flight or flight responses. <laughs> like, right? one we're gonna of, like one of the cortisol. movies. Like, we're gonna <laughs> get you going, you know? Yeah, like Harrison Ford in the movie, uh, you know, the, the Fugitive or, uh, you know, T- Tom Cruise on the run with his, uh, with his brother, Rain Man. And um, boy, so, I mean, that's great. I, I appreciate your opinion. But remember, you're referencing the science and then forming an opinion about it. So we have yes. scientific proof that we don't feel any more sleepy, Correct. even though we're even though we're sleep dead. So we're trying to we're trying to Correct. make the best of it. Yeah, that that's yeah, that's pretty trippy. Yeah, yeah. And and when you look at that same group of people, we also measured their their uh, what's called their neurocognitive vigilance, the test I just referenced just a little bit ago. And if you measure that, or you measure their empathy, or you're going to measure their metabolism, any of these outcome measures that you happen to care about, you'd see it linearly declines over time. So you are not a good judge of your own performance, like you said, with the you know, high school drunk driving courses. So that's been well, well documented. And so what this means is that it's really freaking hard for all of us to be aware of how much sleep debt we're actually carrying. Many of us don't really know. And so the, the signal is, and I think the takeaway is, uh, and there's a famous class at Stanford called Sleep and Dreams. It was taught by a guy named Bill DeMent, who's known as sort of the grandfather of sleep science. He actually started his career at University of Chicago back in the 30s, uh, then went over to Stanford to, to start the field of sleep medicine. 
but he taught a class uh, to undergraduate Stanford and the tagline for the class, the entire thing, this is, this guy is like the, you know, one of the biggest people in the field. And the tagline for his class is drowsiness is red alert. So the idea being, if you are slightly sleepy and you feel at all drowsy, you have significant amount of sleep debt. What's exciting about that is you can then know that you have so much more potential ahead of you in terms of how you're going to feel, how you're going to interact with others, how you're going to perform, you know, in, a, in an athletic context or non-athletic context. So that's what's really exciting about maybe even being drowsy is knowing that you have this whole other frontier to continue to improve. Are you talking about drowsy during the day or at a certain exactly. time when you shouldn't be drowsy? Yeah. Are you drowsy during the day? Yeah. So if after waking up, are you, do you notice that you're drowsy at any point during the day? If so, you have material amount of sleep debt that you can start paying down. Okay. So sleep so debt was number test. one in the, yeah. uh, the two-factor model of sleep. What's number two? So number two is something called the circadian rhythm, which you've also talked a little bit about. I think you've had at least one show on, on the topic. And I'll just simplify it down for, for everyone uh, to, to really what the name circadian even means. So circa is around, is Latin for around. Dian is Latin for day. So it refers to the around a day, the around 24-hour physiological, biological uh, processes that we, that we go through. And so what's happening is we actually have a part in the brain called the SCN. And it's actually controlling at a cellular level. I don't know if you remember back to high school biology, ATP production. ATP is the, the sort of energy source for, for cellular functioning. Literally how much ATP your cells are producing at any given time during the day. And so as a result of that, we actually have times during the day where we should feel groggy, like in the morning. It actually takes about 90 minutes to fully wake up in the morning. Uh, you should not feel very good when you wake up. We can talk about that later. Um, you have times during the day that are peak performance for you. So for example, you've got one peak in the morning and one in the, in the early evening, typically. Um, just quick spoiler here, most Olympic world records are broken in, the, uh, in that second peak. It's the sort of best time if you're trying to break athletic records that you should be performing. And then you actually have a time at night that you should be sleeping biologically. It's when your brain is releasing the sleep hormone melatonin. And so most of us just don't even know these things are happening. And when you know those, what you can then do is rearrange your day based on your peaks of energy, your dips in energy, when you should be feeling groggy, when you should be going to sleep. And it really helps orient what you should do every day and when you should do it. And so it's both of those factors together that if you want to understand how at one o'clock today, you know, Brad, you're going to be performing, what you need to know first is how much sleep debt do you have and where are you within your circadian rhythm? And just like how sleep need is genetically based, your circadian rhythm and how early or late those peaks and dips are shifted is also, is also genetically based. Mm. And it's age-based and light-based and other things we can talk about too. But. So there's such a thing as a night owl. Uh, there's some people that report feeling wide awake every morning. My mom, who's processing the show notes and the timestamps here, is you know it can't can't stay in bed longer than four fifty five a.m. or some crazy thing where you know I'm I'm trying to wake up at a respectable time after I get my my genetically optimal nine hours. I'm thinking I'm one of those people out at the standard deviation. <laughs> um, so 
there's that variation. And I know we have to couch this in all the disastrous modern lifestyle practices we uh, practice, uh, like looking at the screen after dark. And so I think a lot of the people reporting to be night owls are probably people that like looking at the screen and therefore suppressing melatonin while they're working through their Netflix queue. Right, right. Um, and so there are a couple things we can break down. So what exactly is a night owl versus a morning person? And I think most people listening to this, are like, well, I don't know, some people just like the mornings, some people like the evenings. So there's actually a very strong biological way that you mark whether or not you are a late person or an early person. And it's quite simply, if I were to put you in a dim room, so very dim lighting, at what time would your brain start releasing melatonin? Mm. And the scientific term for this is called DLMO, the dim light melatonin onset. And so that time is, is the marker for your circadian rhythm. So for example, I might be, my DLMO might be at nine o'clock and, you know, at night, Brad, yours might be at 3 a.m. And you can actually vary, that can vary eight hours between people. Woo. So um, it's very, very different. So when people say night owl or morning person, it's not a preference. It's a biological phenomenon that we don't have control. I mean, we, we actually can shift it, but it's, uh, it's, it's not something that like someone chooses. Um, and there are ways to become more of a morning person or become more of a night person. We talk about that too, but, um, but it is largely biologically determined. Uh, if we were to create ideal circumstances, like we went on a camping trip for three weeks without any artificial light, and then uh, we're looking who's hanging out at the campfire uh, as the hours of the, the night go by, and there's a couple people left at 3 a.m., and a few people yep. ducked out at you know 8.45. But it's all going to happen after sunset, right? The DLMO doesn't happen at 3 p.m. Uh, Correct. We're, we're looking at that range from extreme... Uh, delayed circadian, Early. right? And isn't teenagers yeah. uh, aren't they in that category of uh, kind of like on this weird catch up where they're on a twenty five yes. hour circadian or something? Yeah. So so um, when you look at if you can sort of look at a couple different patterns and norms. So one is that on average, men are about an hour later than women are. Just on average, again, every person is going to be different, but that's on average. Uh, just like height, you know, men are a little bit taller on average. Uh, the the other thing that we see is also that um, once you hit age 20, it's the latest your DILMA will ever be on average. Oh. Every year after that, it gets slightly earlier and earlier biologically. Wow. So there's actually, a, to your point around like sitting around the campfire and some people are going to bed at 3 a.m. and some people are going to bed at 8.30, there's a, a famous question, which is why is it that all the young kids are going to the discos till 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m.? Is it socially constructed because the discos are open or is it biologically determined? And so this is called the disco hypothesis. And so some <laughs> sleep anthropologists, I know I love the, the name of this, went around to all of these various different uh, indigenous tribes around the world. And they actually put sleep trackers on them and they measured what, uh, what time they're going to bed, what time they're waking up, what age they are, and what they found is that that pattern of you know being young uh, basically determined what time you went to bed, and they were actually able to measure the dilmo and see the difference in you know being young versus old. And so the conclusion is that it's not you know in, in these tribes there are no discos. Like when you're in the middle of the Amazon, there's no like disco to go to, uh, and yet your dilmo is still later. And so the conclusion is that it is it's a biological thing that 
uh, is related to age. And the, the prevailing hypothesis is that it makes sense if you have a community that you need to keep um, safe throughout the whole night. Well, you want some people, you want the, as the sort of elders are going to bed at eight o'clock, you have the young people going to bed at 4.30 or 3.30. And while they're going to bed, the elders are starting to wake up. And so you have someone awake, some group of people awake at sort of all hours during the, during the day to sort of keep the community safe. That's the sort of prevailing hypothesis, but uh, as to why that might be the case, which I think is kind of a cool idea. Very interesting. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so to optimize our sleep habits and our human performance, uh, one, we want to avoid accumulating sleep debt. And if we do yep. accumulate sleep debt, we want to catch up and keep this mental note in our heads. If you pull an all-nighter one night, that means you need to get an extra hour of sleep per night for a week to catch up. Yep. Can yep. we can we jump the gun uh, like my sister and do a three-hour nap and, and just kind of have this um, rapid catch-up rather than gradual if we really, really you know take care to have great sleep hygiene for four days in a row after a, yeah. a disturbing jet trip or whatever it is? So the short answer is yes, but it doesn't come without its consequences. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the things we hear all the time is, okay, Jeff, I like believe you about sleep debt. Uh, I believe you about the circadian rhythm, but honestly, like I get nine hours of sleep. I like don't get a lot of sleep during the week. And then I catch up on, on, you know, Friday night and I get nine hours of sleep. And then the next day I just feel horrible. So I must not need that much sleep. That's what, that's what we hear. And so the question is, what's going on there? Why is it that you feel worse when you get more sleep? And so there's, there's something that we've, uh, and I think Matt Walker calls it this, so I don't know exactly what the source is of this uh, hypothesis, but uh, it's called a sleep hangover. And what's actually going on is that when you get less sleep than you need, your body is increasing its cortisol production, mm-hmm. going into fight or flight, you're right, mobilizing tons of blood sugar, and so you almost feel this high. You're in a fight or flight response mode. When you get more sleep than you need, your cortisol production comes down. And so you're in a much more anabolic state and you feel a little bit more groggy. And that grogginess, you know, is what people can say, oh yeah, I don't feel as good. But if you get more sleep for about one more day or two, two more days at max is what we've seen, that all goes away. So, and actually if you measure your objective performance, objective performance is, is, is higher. So it's just this sort of state of maybe feeling foggy that some people don't like. But my advice would be keep going. You're on the right track. You you just have to get through that, you know, through that grogginess. Well, I have to say this is extremely important information for all of us to consider. And especially for athletes, when you have this uh, prolonged overproduction of cortisol, you do feel fantastic for for days or weeks on end. And I have these reference points when I was back training as a professional triathlete and I would go strong for six weeks and wake up every single day feeling (laughs) fantastic, rise and shine, don't even need an alarm, go out there and train hard for hours and hours, uh, come back, sleep well, wake up the next day, feel great. But I was on a a prolonged stress high. And at some point you fall off a cliff because it's out of balance. It's beyond your physical capacities and your your reasonability of what you can handle, but you're you're fooled by the the cortisol shower that you're taking every day. And I would maybe call this like the Hawaii uh, beach lounge chair uh, phenomenon as well, because when we extricate ourselves from these high stress situations and we fly off to 
Hawaii for a vacation from whatever it is I'm talking about, my training, but people in a stressful job situation or whatever their normal hectic daily life is. Then they're sleeping on the beach. They're taking these lazy two-hour naps. They can hardly get up to go refresh their drink at the bar and they're sleeping like crazy <laughs> every night. And so you, you have to work through this and you know re, return to balance and you feel like crap for... I remember feeling like crap for weeks on end wow. coming off of a binge of extreme jet travel and racing. And it's really confusing. And I had to study and learn all about the, um, you know, <laughs> the adrenal glands and the stress response because you, you just can't figure it out. It's like, wait, I, I felt great every day that I was out there cranking and now I fell off a cliff and I feel like crap. But if you, if you right. don't ride it out and come back to normal, um, yeah, you're in trouble. And I think sleep is just one factor in that whole equation of uh, overproducing 100%. cortisol. Huh. Yeah, that's it, it. So yeah, I mean, you've seen it and you've you felt it personally kind of on a more extreme level uh, in your training. And it's it's something that that, that we see just all the time. Um, so it's uh, it, it can be very tricky to know how you're actually doing and don't be too quick to judge <laughs> You know, right. and, and I'd say the other, the other very, very common thing that I think is worth mentioning around just your own state is most people judge their prior night's sleep when they wake up. So they wake up and they're like, how do I feel? Oh, I'm groggy. I, last night must have not been very good. Mm. But you actually need to wait about 90 minutes mm. uh, before you judge yourself. So that's another thing too, is don't take the state of how you're doing give yourself about 90 minutes before you do that. And that's because there's something called sleep inertia where you're actually chemically groggy in the morning. You have a chemical called adenosine that's the neurotransmitter that is uh, present in the morning that is slowly weaning off. So there's a couple of ways you can beat that. One is coffee, which is, you mm. know, no surprise, coffee is, is, is so widely consumed. But coffee first thing can help mask it. Um, so can getting outside sunlight and exercise. So that, that common, I mean, I actually do that trifecta, which is coffee in the morning, which I love. Also the half-life is, you know, uh, is it's short enough that it won't affect my sleep at night if I have coffee in the morning. And then I get out and do a run, you know, as soon as I can to get morning sunlight, which the closeness of sunlight to when you wake up also is a very critical factor actually for that night's sleep. Uh, so, so anyway. But that, with uh, with complete purity of of let's say a health a circadian experience, it's it's actually okay to feel groggy for the first ninety minutes, and it's yes. not a it's not a critique. It's actually probably a marker of health. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I think the other thing that's a little bit different when you talk about our modern lifestyle practices, you know, it used to be that when the sun came up you were getting full on sunlight. So, you know, if you know what camping's like, you wake up at, as soon as the sun comes up. It's a very different wake up experience than now where we're in our bedrooms. Many of us have blackout shades or eye masks. And so biologically, that was also not the norm. Light is the signal to start actually uh, decreasing melatonin production, increasing serotonin production. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's also something that's so different today when we wake up that we just don't have the same access to light that we once did. And it just that I think is even ex uh, exacerbating that sort of 90 minute grogginess when we wake. So, to uh, optimize this, I guess we can try to expose ourselves to direct sunlight, especially the, 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 the naked eye, the plain eyeballs out, out into the sun, not staring at the sun, yep. people. I'm not talking about yeah, that, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, getting, getting yourself into physical movement and sun exposure will, will awaken you naturally. Um, 100%. Otherwise, 
expect to be groggy, I guess. Yeah, expect to be groggy. And so there's basically two ways you can beat the grogginess. One is reducing your sleep debt will always help. Mm. So if your sleep debt's low, because what will happen is your body will then wake yourself up naturally. You cannot physiologically oversleep. So is that so? Yeah, so your body will wake you up naturally. So that's helpful. Uh, But if you have that, plus you're able to get natural light, not only does it help beat the grogginess, but the sunlight that you get in the morning is actually a signal. It's called a Zeitgeber, which is a German word for time giver. And it sets the circadian clock saying, hey, it's the new day. Mm. And actually that night, you'll have a much stronger release of melatonin, which is going to help you feel sleepier. Uh, you're going to stay asleep longer. You're going to have much more naturalistic sleep uh, that, that, that you want anyway. So um, it's sort of a double win in that it beats the grogginess. You get exercise, which is also good. And it helps you at night. The, uh, the the good night's sleep starts first thing in the morning with sun exposure. Yes. Uh, so there's no such thing as oversleeping? Correct. And so what, what do you make of those research uh, studies uh, showing the people who <laughs> get more sleep live a shorter lifespan? I, I yeah. guess your response, um, but yeah. Yeah. So the the those studies are sort of backward looking in nature. So they are, uh, <laughs> they're self-report and they're backward looking. So really what the, just the way the study's done is, Hey, we're going to survey a bunch of people. We're going to ask them how much they're sleeping. And then we're going to look at how long they, they they've lived and what are their sort of health risk factors they had. And then we're going to run a bunch of stats on it. And that's problematic for a number of reasons. But what you see when you look at those studies is sort of U-shaped curve where, you know, if you sleep, I think it's like, what, seven to eight hours, your life expectancy is maximized. If you get eight to nine, your life expectancy decreases. And if you get nine to 10, it decreases more. And if you're 10 plus, even just is like, you know, just in the gutter. And so the issue with those studies is that what does that mean to sleep 10 hours a night on self-report? Like, what does that actually mean? Like, did that mean that you had a lot of sleep debt built up? Did that like, we? so it's not actually clear what it is the study is even trying to answer. All we can conclude is that if you put that you sleep 10 hours or more per night on a study, that your, your core, that's very highly correlated with living a less long life. That's really all we can conclude from that study because of the way that it's been done. So it's, it's, uh, it's um, likely that the leading hypothesis is that the people that are likely to select that they were in bed 10 or more hours have other comorbidities and health mm-hmm. issues where they're not actually sleeping 10 hours but they're in bed all day. They're on various sorts of uh, medicines that are keeping them in bed all day. They're lying in bed around all day. It's not actually, it doesn't actually have to do with how much physiological sleep they happen to be getting. And the people that are reporting eight to nine are the people that are likely, you know, on average to be healthier in, in, in other respects. So I would take those studies with a very, very huge grain of salt, just in the way that they're, they're, they're conducted. Big giant uh, deer, what do they call it? The deer lick, that giant block of salt you put in your yard so the deer can have, yeah, it's like a 10 pound, <laughs> yeah, an incredibly 10 pound large, grain of salt. Yeah, a, a 10 pound grain, you know, look at it with, with a 10 pound grain of salt. Uh, uh, so I want to get to that, um, the, that genetic uh, prescription for sleep and the standard deviation. And I'm curious, how would one know where they fall on that scale? and um, maybe even talk a moment about the outliers. Yeah. Um, so the, the 
best way to, to do it, not the easiest way, but the best way to figure out your biological sleep need is based on the observation that you cannot oversleep. And so what you do, <laughs> and actually how they determine the sleep need information. Just gone, speaking the truth, people. Come on now. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, Brad, at the beginning of this, I told you everything I'd say is should be able to be traced back to uh, some peer-reviewed paper. So if there's any listener out there that's concerned that what I'm saying may not have scientific basis, uh, we'd be happy to send out, you know, the actual papers that, that, you know, what I'm saying is based on. And I might be getting some things wrong on the margin, but uh, overall it should be uh, in consensus agreement with what the sleep science community has to say. And um, is something that we hold ourselves to, to that standard, you know, and everything nice. we do. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, so, working with NBA and NFL players and I have uh, Tim DeFrancesco, former strength and conditioning coach for the Lakers. And he, he uttered a great soundbite on our interview. And he says, if you're in the NBA, you're asleep from two to 5 p.m. Yes. All of them. Yeah. You know, and I mean, the, the NBA yeah. is, ugh, it is absolutely, I won't tell you who, but very famous player. Everyone listening to this would know uh, this person's name. And we were talking to, together about sleep. And he said, Jeff, I, you know, now that we're talking about it, it's okay to talk about it. And the team's invested in it. He said, literally, I will tell you that I am on the floor at half court and I am struggling to keep my eyes open. That's how tired I am. Can you imagine that playing in front of, you know, 50, 60,000 roaring fans in the middle of a game, you have all the adrenaline sort of masking the effects of fatigue and you're so tired that you can barely keep your eyes awake in the middle of a game of an NBA game. That's how tired some of these guys are. I mean, it's just the travel schedule schedule. is ridiculous. Yeah. And um, Tim was telling me like uh, they, instead of staying in a hotel after an evening game on the East Coast, they will load up the private jet and fly across the country basically all night. Uh, yeah. And and I'm like, why why do they do that? And he said, well, if they if they stayed in the same city where they just played, the players are probably going to go out clubbing and not get any sleep anyway. So they just want to get home. And I'm like, oh man, that's that's brutal. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah, if you're if you're in a lifestyle of heavy debt, uh, like my sister, like an emergency medical worker, first responder, whatever. Um, you still have that potential to recover that debt in any way, shape, exactly. or form. I'm, I'm guessing. Exactly. You do. You do. Yeah. Um, and so that can't be as good of, as yeah. sleeping straight up every night, but you're still making your best effort to grab those naps. Yeah. Yeah. You know, look, the, the downside is, you know, if you think about every day as a performance event, you know, some of them matter more or less than others. But mm-hmm. you know, you're with your partners, you're with your, you know, friends, you're with your family, you're, you know with your coworkers. So if you think about every day as sort of a performance event, what's going to affect that dominantly, I mean, there's lots of other factors, but the biggest factor that we know of scientifically is your sleep debt and your circadian rhythm. And so if those things are, so imagine you're building up high debt, that just means that most of the days that you're living, you're vastly underperforming your potential. And that's really the downside of living a high debt lifestyle. And then you pay it back, but then you're building it right back up again. And so you're living most of your life, you know, vast, not only vastly underperforming, but you're also incurring, and this is the part that's less known. And so again, I want to, I know Matt Walker talks very strongly about sleep is related to every chronic, you know, 11 out of the 12 chronic diseases, whatever he happens to say on that. All of that is true, but we don't really know the exact amounts and quantities and how it all transpires. What we do know is when you get, when you build up sleep debt, you get less sleep than you need 
your body goes into fight or flight mode and doing that over an extended period of time, you know, Brad, you know, how, how bad and detrimental that is for long-term, you know, health and, and longevity. So, um, so that's, you know, I think what's, what's going on there. I, so to answer your question about how do you know how much sleep you need, because you cannot oversleep, literally what you do is you go into a cool, dark, quiet room. You make sure that you have no sort of unnatural substances, you know, plaguing your sleep. Uh, that would be things like THC or alcohol or a bunch of light exposure before bed. So you have cool, dark, quiet, you know, naturalistic, you know, sleep environment and sleep routine leading up to sleep. And then you just get as much sleep as you possibly can. And what you'll see is that most people get, you know, maybe ten, nine or 10 hours the first night, and then a little less the next mm-hmm. night, a little less the next night, and then it'll level off somewhere where their sleep need is. And where most people tend to level off is about eight hours and 10 minutes of sleep or eight hours and 15 minutes of sleep. But again, with a 35 minute standard deviation. So that's how you actually know how much sleep you need. It is hard to do that. So actually one of the things we've developed in our app is there's a bunch of algorithms that we can pull in all of your data uh, and and make a a very good uh, prediction as to what your biological sleep need actually is. And it uses all the data we had from pro athletes and a bunch of other cool stuff to kind of make that happen. But um, that's a little bit easier because then you don't have to do anything. Right. It's going to be hard to discover that on your own unless you create those ideal circumstances for, let's say, yes. a couple of weeks on end. Yeah. Yeah. And really a week. If you create the circumstances for a week or you go to Hawaii uh, mm. for a week or whatever, you know, you should be able to. But even then, it can be difficult. Um, so, so, yeah. Uh, so I want to ask you about the wimp factor. This is a personally okay. motivated question, right? Since I had that privilege in my life to uh, race on the pro circuit as an athlete so that sleep was of the utmost priority. And during the 10 years of time I was out there training hard, um, I was asleep for half of that time. I slept for 10 hours every night and a two-hour nap every afternoon. So maybe it's a two-part question. One of them is I, I, I'm speculating that you can make yourself uh, require more sleep due to extreme physical effort out there every day. And then the other part is like, if I get used to uh, prioritizing sleep to such an incredible extent that um, a wussy boy, if I don't get perfect sleep, and there, maybe is there a psychological mm. component where... Uh, now we're going to the constant commentary about rallying and sucking it up and toughing it up. Um, is there kind of a, a balance point there where some of that's relevant? Yeah, no, the first question is a great one. Uh, and I think gets to a larger question about, you know, sleep hygiene and all these ways to optimize your sleep, quote unquote. Um, the, what, what you experience is you were training so intensely that your body actually need, required more sleep. And this is true for folks that are training really at that level. Most people, most athletes even, aren't training at that level. I mean, it is, you know, in terms of the amount of stress physiologically that you're putting on your body, it was incredibly high. Um, and so in those circumstances, but, but I think what's exciting is not just in those circumstances from that, is that your brain is actually set up to optimize the sleep you are getting at night. So it will change how much deep sleep you're getting, how much REM sleep you're getting, how much, um, you know, stage two you're getting all based on what you did that day. If you worked out super hard, it's going to prioritize one set of, uh, what, you know, one, one type of sleep. If you, um, happen to get three hours last night, it's actually going to change when you're going to get REM and the percentage of REM that you're going to get that night. And so the brain is highly adaptive to what sort of sleep you need and already set up to optimize it. 
And so our view, and this is a view, I think Matt Walker's also put on this view, I think many others is, we need to get out of the way of our own biology. So don't try and, you know, influence it with other things, just, you know, give it what it needs so that, so that you can, you know, have naturalistic sleep every night, cool, dark, quiet, have a wind down routine. You know, those are sort of, that's the basics and we can go, you know, really specific. So that's on the first question of like, what, um, you know, do you need, can you get to a point where you need more sleep? Yes. And I think the lesson for all of us is, um, while that's true for elite athletes, it's also true that your brain is self-optimizing, you know, on a nightly basis, what you need. The second question is like, how did you, especially in our work with pro athletes, this was a question because we were coming in there and sometimes we get laughed out of the room. You know, the, co- the heads of performance knew that sleep was important, but how do we communicate this to players? And I remember um, having a conversation with one of the most famous NBA players of all time. And, um, and he said, Jeff, you know, I'm getting like four or five hours of sleep at night. And, you know, I'm fine. I'm busy. I've got my own business. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a great NBA player. That's true. He is. <laughs> and what I told him is I said, look, you're already good at basketball. But what I know is that you could be much better. And you're leaving a lot on the court right now if you got a little more sleep. And so that's the other sort of exciting thing is that, um, you know, that's, it's an opportunity to improve. I would say in terms of how we position, like, what does it mean? Let's say you, you have a huge event, you're playing in the Super Bowl, and the night before you're up all night, and I think we've all had these nights where you're just up, you, you, you wake up at 4 a.m., you're wide awake, you've got a huge event the next day. Well, the, there's good news and bad news. The good news is how you perform tomorrow is going to be based on your sleep debt not what you did the previous night. So if you, you know, have been keeping track of your sleep and you've been being pretty disciplined about your sleep debt, you know, one night of getting three hours, so let's say you build up four hours of sleep debt in a night. Well, if you've had two hours of sleep debt and you only have six hours, that's not that bad. Like you're doing actually pretty decent and you will be just fine. But the opposite's true that if you have 20 hours or 15 hours mm. and you're like, oh, I'm going to get 10 hours before the big game, uh, it's also not going to help you much. So, you know, that's the helpful part about sleep debt is it's not just last night. It's not just the night before. Um, and it sort of allows you to give yourself a little bit of a breather to say, what actually matters tonight? Well, how much sleep debt do you have? Do you have 10 hours? If you have 10 hours, like maybe tonight, don't stay up watching, you know, a bunch of Netflix, maybe prioritize going to bed a little bit earlier. Oh, but I've got two hours and I want to go out for a friend's birthday and go out till 2 a.m. And tomorrow isn't so important. All right, you know, I'm going to make an informed trade-off. So I think that's the power of sleep debt is this metric where it kind of puts you back in control of how important is sleep that night based on what, what's going on in your life. I love the uh, reference to the top athlete who's already mastered their game. And yeah. so you aren't going to see uh, this ridiculous drop-off in performance even though they're, they're, they're running on fumes all the time. And I would speculate that millions of people fall into this category where yes. they are a successful startup entrepreneur who's taken the company public and they're grinding. And well, Elon Musk said it in public uh, on, um, uh, on Joe Rogan's show, he goes, if you're not working 100 hours a week, you're not going to change the world with great innovations and entrepreneurial skills. And he got widely criticized for that. Uh, yeah. you know, responsibly so. But um, in his case, he is at that level where he, he's doing these amazing things and arguably uh, his, his stat is probably somewhere close to accurate. But again, as you, as you um, contend, 
maybe he'd have, you know, further breakthroughs if he prioritized sleep more. Exactly. It's a question of like, it's just actually unmeasurable. He's making a claim that he hasn't tested. And so it's like, all right, and he's so sleep deprived that it was sort of foolish for him to even (laughs) make the statement because he would have realized, oh yeah, what would it be like if I actually did it the other way? Let's say he slept, you know, so Jeff Bezos is the other example, you know, where Jeff, um, you know, he won't take a meeting before 10 a.m. because oh, he nice. knows that. His I didn't know that. So we have a yeah. we have a counterexample, people. And he sleeps a lot. You know, LeBron James sleeps a lot. Mm. Like most people do really need a lot of sleep. I was actually um, pretty close with the head of performance of the Bulls, this guy Chip Schaefer, who's who's awesome. Mm. And, um, and he used to coach Michael Jordan. He's currently the head of performance of the Bulls. But uh, he said to me, he said, Jeff, one of the things people don't realize, you know, obviously Michael was incredible. Um, but he said what they don't realize is that he, he was someone who, who I believe didn't have a very high sleep need. On top of that, he was incredibly gifted. He said, but everyone else on that team surrounding him took their sleep incredibly seriously. And so, you know, he's also known for like not getting a lot of sleep and being out late and being Michael Jordan and you know, it's just so, what you don't know is that how good could Michael Jordan have been had he got more sleep? And that's the, like, it's, it's, it's not like a conjecture. It's like scientifically, literally his reaction time would be 10% faster. Like, wow. How amazing would he be then? Yeah. And to, I mean, you could, you could, uh, launch a counter argument, but we really should, uh, settle the matter by saying, if Tiger Woods is also extremely low sleeper and he's known for being up at late at night and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the tell all biography that Hank Haney wrote that, you know, he's, he's sending texts at three in the morning and then on the lesson T at six forty-five. But <laughs> if one of those athletes was provided with an optimal sleep environment where they did the wind down routine and that they had, um, dim lights around the home and they were donning their UV blocking glasses, arguably they would maybe creep up there into the seven hour range, right at the edge of the standard deviation or or something rather than four or five and a half or six or pulling all nighters here and there. So boy, that, that's something for all of us to chew on where, you know, we're getting through our day, we're doing fine, maybe we're successful or, you know, we, we can report thumbs up all around, but dream of, you know, going from level seven to level nine, that's pretty exactly. big time. And that's what the exactly. Rise app is all about. That Jeff's going to tell you a little more. <laughs> I, I appreciate your time so much. And oh my gosh, it's just, we'll have to have a, a follow-up show after people have taken this advice to heart for a year. But uh, talk a little bit about how we can get going with the Rise app and any way that we want to um, follow you guys or connect further. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure to get to have the conversation and, and share, you know, what so many great and, and intelligent scientists have discovered before me. So, uh, you know, I'm just reporting what's been found. So it's the job has been, been a bit easier for me. Um, so thank you, Sleep Science Community, for that. But uh, the Rise app talks a lot about and makes it really easy to weave in the things we talked about today just into your life. So we help you understand your sleep need. We help you understand your sleep debt. We help you understand and map out your energy schedule, your peaks and dips, when your melatonin window is. We'll help you set up your wind down routine. So all the things we just talked about, we help you put into practice to make really actionable. Um, it's on the Play Store. It's in the App Store. Uh, you can type in Rise, and it's a purple R, so you can go in and, and, and check it out. Um, we also sync with all the devices out there. So if you have Aura Ring, if you have Eight Sleep, whatever device you have, we'll also sync with. Um, 
And if you don't have a device, that's okay. We'll also measure your sleep uh, using a, a different technique. But um, what I would say um, to sort of close that up is that everything we talked about today, at least most of it is available online that we publish in our sleep guide. So if you want to go deeper or you want to, you want to nerd out about it like we do and look at the peer-reviewed papers, if you go to risescience.com, we have a tab that says sleep guide and um, you can click that. We're continually updating that with um, more of the science and, and trying to explain this stuff uh, so that ultimately, you know, you can put your time and your effort and your focus on the things that are actually going to move the needle for you. So that you can find online. We're also on Twitter, where as we publish stuff, you'll, you'll be able to see that there um, and Instagram. So those are the, all the sorts of places that you can, you can find us. And of course, if you want to start a trial, it's free and we'd love to have you give it a shot. Jeff Kahn from Rise Science, bring in the heat, man. What a fascinating show. <laughs> Thank you so much. I look forward to hearing feedback from the, the listeners. And uh, I think everything we floated out there, you really came on strong with a really reasonable uh, approach or suggestion or you know, the science validating all these things that uh, you know, we wonder about and are floating around. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for listening, yeah, you everybody. Got it. Thank you for listening to the show. I love sharing the experience with you and greatly appreciate your support. Please email podcast at bradventures.com with feedback, suggestions, and questions for the Q&A shows. Subscribe to our email list at bradkearns.com for a weekly blast about the published episodes and a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter edition with informative articles and practical tips for all aspects of healthy living. You can also download several awesome free ebooks when you subscribe to the email list. And if you could go to the trouble to leave a five or five-star review with Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the shows, that would be super incredibly awesome. It helps raise the profile of the BRAD podcast and attract new listeners. And did you know that you can share a show with a friend or loved one by just hitting a few buttons in your player and firing off a text message? My awesome podcast player called Overcast allows you to actually record a soundbite excerpt from the episode you're listening to and fire it off with a quick text message. Thank you so much for spreading the word. And remember, be rad.